welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. For the last 10 years, I, was, uh, uh, I taught in a vicar factory called St. Melitus College. And so loads of Anglican, mostly Anglican vicars were coming. One in five, one in four of the next crop of Anglican vicars um, were coming through the doors. And, and I was teaching them all. And it was like impossible for me to go. I mean, I can't even go to this church. So I have former students in this church. It's not even Anglican. But like it was impossible for me to go to almost any church in the country without seeing a former student of mine. And I was going to, to a sermon once and I sat at the front because there was no other seats and my former student was preaching and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to really pay attention. I'm going to have to look like I'm paying attention. So I sat there with my eyes open and I nodded and I was really enthusiastic. And then afterwards, I came up to him afterwards and he was like, oh, Stephen, didn't see you there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I just wanted to shut my eyes and go to sleep. So what we're going to do, I've been, some of you have seen me. Now I'm kind of doing double duty right now. So I've been um, here on Friday, here on Saturday, and we've been looking at a whole, like a theme really. And, to, and today is, is part of that theme. So for some people in the room, like they've been journeying and this is Part, this is the end or the part of something we've already been doing, but I'm aware that most people in this room, that is not true for you. So I will give you a quick catch up what we've done. The other thing is that I preached two, uh, the other two services this morning, but they're different, ser- they're different services, different sermons. So, and they've been recorded. So if, if you want, like the idea was that if you listen to all of today and if you were around Friday and Saturday, you'd get a full, a full thing. So just to let you know. And what I do is I'm a political theologian, as Adam said, which means that, um, well, I mean, long story short, I, I came to England from Canada about 22 years ago, and I, did, I lived in Guildford, actually. It was one of the first places I lived. And, and it really started to make me think about the, the relationship between my nationality and my Christianity, because I'd left one home culture, which very closely identified its Christianity with its religion, or with its culture. And I moved to a whole new country. And all the Christians that I met weren't quite ticking all the same boxes that I was used to. And I had to sort of work out what it meant. What was the relationship between the home culture I was born into and then the Christ faith that I was choosing? And so that was a a good experience for me. and 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 it essentially led to me when I did decide to go to university and start to study theology and philosophy, I started to really pay attention to that whole idea of, of, uh, of nationality and culture and Christianity, okay? which led me into looking at political theology, the Christian's relationship to their, to their home cultures, to their countries, to their nations. So you start to do political theology. So it's not who to vote for, right? It's not that kind of all Christians should be vote for the red team so the blue team doesn't win. Or all Christians should vote for the blue team so the red team doesn't win, right? Like that's a really small, narrow, withered political imagination. There's so much more that we have as Christ followers to offer to society. And by politics, and I don't mean just who to vote for every four or five years. It's what is our shared vision for society? 
How do we use our power? We collectively agree about something. Now we've got power. What do we do with it? What's our goal in life? Is it to gain power or is it to give it away? Who do we think is important? Who do we think counts? Who do we think doesn't count? Whose opinion do we value? Whose opinion don't we value? All of those questions are actually quite political. Do you know what I mean? It's all about like how do we organize ourselves? How, how do we live in this world? And then how do we negotiate the space when we meet other groups who don't have the same vision for our society, right? And that's all political. So you're looking at like how do Christians, how do Christ followers relate to these forces in our life? And um, people ask me all the time like what is, what, is, what is a Christian politics then? Is it left or right or is it capitalist or socialist or free market or communist? They just ask me all that stuff, conservative, liberal. And I have to say to them, you know, to be really honest, if you're a political scientist and you pay attention to the spectrum of the different ways you put somebody's politics, the honest answer is Christianity is anarchy. There's a sort of anarchy at the heart of Christianity, and it, and it can be summed up by the verse, the Holy Spirit blows where he will. That the Christians, when they started to organize themselves and when they started to have a sense of like what they were doing in this world, they held their former institutions very lightly. They were ready to dismantle them at a moment's notice. They didn't think being born a Jew or being born a Gentile was the most important thing that had ever happened to them. They didn't think their Roman citizenship was this holy thing that must be protected at all costs. They didn't think their religion or their business or their tribe were the things that identified their core identity, right? They gave it away, they broke it down, they changed at a moment's notice if it no longer served their purposes. And the other thing about Christians is they, they didn't try and collect power for themselves, they tried to give it away. Which is what an anarchist does. If you're a political scientist, you, don't, you know that an anarchist is not uh, somebody who throws a brick through a bank window or beats up a policeman or something. That's not, that's not what we mean. We mean somebody whose goal in life or groups of people whose vision in life is, is not to collect power, but to give it away. And it's not to build these big, solid institutions that will lurch forward into history and ground up the people who are part of those institutions. Instead, they say, anarchists will say, you know, they'll always review what they're doing. They'll say, is this group that we've created, is it still serving its purpose? Or should we stop what we're doing? Right? So that's, so when Pete, Greg, and Adam, and Hannah were asking, were like saying, hey, what do we want to talk about for this weekend when I come and do theology? I gave them a list of things, and one of the ones we lit on was benign anarchy. The Christian life is a life of benign anarchy. It's not malicious, it's not malignant, we're not trying to destroy, so it's not negative. It's benign because it's good, it's loving, it's life-giving. But it also isn't about setting up these solid institutions that are going to lurch forward into history. It's not about gathering power in order to dominate others. Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles who lord their power over others. Instead, lay down your life for your friends, right? So, the other thing to point out is that a lot of Christians, we kind of have this imagination, don't we, that like... Um, oh, religion and politics don't mix. 
your faith is private. It has nothing to do with, you've got to leave it at the door if you enter public life. It's a really well-known way of thinking, right? But the problem is that is not a way of thinking that anybody who wrote or first read the New Testament would have thought. And one of the reasons I know that is because if you go to the New Testament and you look, if you think about the Gospels, the Gospels were the account, the earliest Gospel is the Gospel of Mark, and it was written probably around the late 60s, AD 60 or AD 70. So we're thinking 30, 40 years after Jesus, the events after Jesus. And um, it makes sense, the, old, the first eyewitness testimonies, people like the Apostle Peter were old men now and they were going to die. And somebody says, oh, crap, I better write this stuff down. And they do. And they're writing about it. And it's really interesting. If you look at the Gospels, you think, well, what, what words did they reach for? They're trying to say, what did it feel like? Peter, old man Peter, what did it feel like to be around Jesus? And you'd think that he'd reach for all these words that are kind of religious words, right? Because Jesus is a religious figure, right? No, but guess what? He reaches for words like king and kingdom and faith and gospel. And it's really interesting that you talked about faith. We you know, did the prayer of faith here. I want to talk about that for a little bit. That when Jesus went around and he said, have faith in me or believe in me, it was... The word is pistos, which means um, the original word is Greek word, and, it, and it's, it feels more like hearing Jesus say, have um, allegiance to me. Be patriotic towards me. So we often think, don't we, that faith, like the opposite of faith is doubt. Or we think if Jesus says, have faith in me, that we're supposed to understand everything that he's saying, or that... I have doubts about Christianity, therefore I can't be a Christian, right? Or I can't explain it to my friends. It's too complicated, so I can't be a Christian. And if, I could, if I could give a clever answer to a complicated question, then I could be have, said to have faith. But I can't give a clever answer, so I don't have faith, right? That's not the way it operates in the New Testament. It operates more like Jesus doesn't say, have faith in me. He doesn't say, describe me really well to your friends. He's not saying, understand all the crazy stuff that I'm saying and doing. What he's saying is, are you ashamed to be with me? And it's interesting that throughout the New Testament, people who have faith, they're like, your faith has healed you or your faith has saved you. And what he's saying is, it's not saying, congratulations, you screwed up your own inner resources and you wished hard enough and you 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 were able to use the power of positive thinking to make yourself well or to save yourself from your sins. No, he's saying, congratulations. You're not ashamed to be with me. Your faith has saved you. He puts his arm around you, right? And the other, that's a political word, allegiance, faith. The other word is gospel. And I'll really quickly tell you that the gospel, we now Christians think, oh, the gospel means Jesus died and rose again for our sins or something like that. And look, I, yeah, I agree. And if you were a first century Roman-occupied Palestinian and you heard the word gospel, which is euangelion, 
you didn't hear Jesus who died and rose again for our sins. What you heard was a Roman military word, a political word, which is a word that you would use to describe like if a prince was born. It's a kingly word. It has to do with like, good news, your rightful king has been born, uh, which is what the angels declared at the, one of the birth narratives in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, or more, even more, like imagine you lived in a city and your city was encircled by enemies and then Caesar comes and he breaks the siege and then he'll send his heralds into the city and they'll cry, good news, good news, your rightful king has come and broken the siege. So when the gospel writers sit down, they're going, gee, what did it feel like to be around Jesus? If you look at Mark 1.1, in the beginning, the good news of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. In the beginning, the news that your rightful king has come to break the siege. And so when Jesus marches around the land and he says, have faith in me, he's like, I'm a king. Show your allegiance to me. Come be on my team. And to be on his team, in a way, means to leave another team, right? So all that born-again language that Christians like to use, it doesn't mean it's a private event in your heart. It means you die to your old allegiances and family and nationality and institutions that lay claim to your identity, and you're born into a new one, which is identity with Jesus, right? And I wanted to look at the Gospel of Mark and show a little bit how this happens. There's two stories, the tale of two coins. Let's have a look. My, my, my thing fell out. My bookmark fell out. No, that's right. It's on the floor. But um, I know the story. I just want to find the verse so I can tell you what it is. Sorry about that. Talk amongst yourselves. Oh, how annoying that that fell out. Oh, there it is. Matthew, Mark 12. Mark 12, 13 to 17. And this is the story. If you want to get out your Bibles, have a look. But this is the famous story of the people that come to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes or not? And it ends with give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, right? It's a famous story. So what happens was a bunch of people, um, some, some Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both, they were both Jewish groups, and they hated each other because they both had a different vision for how to live as chosen people under the rule of the Roman Empire. You really have to remember this. The Roman Empire had dominated. To be a chosen person means to be the true human. To, so if you were a Roman or a Gentile, you were less than human. So for the Jews, they lived in a land in which less than humans were running the show. And everything that happened to them was made impure. So the Jews were left in a land that was constantly made impure because these dirty foreigners were around doing everything and touching everything, right? And there's quite a lot of like racism and ethnic purity and all that that you could imagine today was alive then too, right? This is the land and the culture that Jesus is negotiating. And there's Pharisees and Sadducees and they both um, hate each other 
because they have different visions of how to deal with Rome and all this, but they hate Jesus even more. So they join together to, to go to him. And they say, teacher, should we? They want to trap him, we're told in Mark. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, what you have to know about this is this isn't a question about should we pay taxes? Because the, co- the, the tax that Caesar was, was levying on the people was not money being used to keep the streets clean and, you know, keep the, the lamps lit. This wasn't municipal taxes. This was a tax that Caesar waged, put onto the Jews for the right to worship in their own temple. It was a racial insult. It was, you Jews think you're so special? Well, you have to pay me for the right to go to your own temple. And that tax was the source of um, upset and unrest all the time. It was constantly like, to refuse to pay the tax was like an act of rebellion. And there were actual violent rebellions all the time centered around this tax. So when the people come to him and say, Jesus, should we pay the tax? They're not saying, should we pay taxes? They're saying, Jesus, should we participate in this racial insult? And what does Jesus do? He says, yes. He says, Who's, take, here, give me a coin. And he takes the coin and it has Caesar's head on it, right? It has Caesar's image on it. Which, by the way, is idolatry if you're a Jew. And it instantly made Jesus unclean. He takes the coin, which was considered dirty money, which is why, by the way, the temple needed money changers to change these Roman coins. He takes the coin and he says, whose image is on this? Whose graven image is on this? It's an idol. And they say Caesar's. And they're expecting him to go, then throw it in the dirt and stay pure because you are God's chosen people. And instead he says, then give it back to him and pay the tax. Because we have God's image in us and we have something more important going on. Give to Caesar what's, it's only money. Right? He treated with indifference something that everybody else's whole lives was was revolving around. That, that racial purity, they wanted Braveheart. They were waiting for Braveheart to kick the Romans out and release the land. And, you know, they wanted that kind of freedom fighter. And he said, no, just pay the tax. Who cares? Give to God what's his image, you know. We've got something more important going on. And there's this kind of the anarchy, the benign anarchy here is the that he treats with indifference what other people's thought was the most important thing about them. The other coin, which I'll very quickly go to, is right at the end. In Mark 15. And this is a hidden coin that nobody knows about, except political theologians like me. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, the calling of Elijah. And then they give him something to drink. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry. And he breathes his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw 
that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So, first of all, the centurion, we've been maybe kind of colonized, our imaginations have been colonized to think, oh, a soldier, so he's a, you know, he's valiant and he's protecting people and he's an honorable. No, 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 a Roman soldier is the occupying force, the enemy occupying force, okay? And they've just crucified Jesus. And by the way, you don't crucif crucifixion was a Roman torture that was designed to go to punish people who were seen to be treasonous against Rome. And the two thieves on either side of Jesus, they weren't just thieves, they were highwaymen. They were, they were people who attacked the roads. And if you think about the Roman roads, right? That was the straight roads that dominate the land that any Roman takes over. So if you were a highwayman, you were a treason against Rome. So when they looked at Jesus, they saw somebody who was a threat to Rome. King. And they put him on the cross. And it's not, we say Jesus died for our sins, but it's not that Jesus died for our secret inner sins. It's that Jesus died for, you know, all that collected agreement about religion and ethnic purity and freedom fighters and popularity and empire and domination. That's the sin that put Jesus on the cross. They all our acts of collective human sin, we couldn't live with Jesus. And we pinned him to the cross, right? And then the gospel really wants you to know that at that moment, the, when the Roman centurion's at the foot of the cross, he looks up and he sees how Jesus died. He submitted himself to all these powers. And he said, surely this man is the son of God. It's not a private religious phrase. He wasn't just singing a worship song. Son of God was all stamped on every Roman coin in his, that soldier's purse. Because the same coin that Jesus held had Caesar's head on it, and above it it had Caesar, son of God. So when the Roman centurion stands at the cross and he sees how Jesus, the alternative way that Jesus dealt with all that, power and corruption and violence and he submitted to it and he didn't didn't fight the world the way the world fights the roman centurion mark really wants you to know said surely this man is the rightful ruler of the universe surely he's the real king and at the foot of the cross the soldier the enemy of enemies had faith in jesus because he showed allegiance to the king So listen, friends, I'm just going to stop there. But I just, I, I'm always aware that, and we already started, you know, this idea that we started today saying, if you haven't become a Christian yet, this is a really good chance. But like, I'm always aware there's people in a room who are maybe think, I don't have faith, I can't have faith, I doubt too much. I'm like, that's, that's okay. When, you, when, we, when we're saying to become a follower of Christ, you're not saying... I understand everything he ever did and I can understand the miracles and I can talk about the Trinity without committing a heresy. We're not saying that. What we're saying is you go, surely this man is the best human being we've ever met and I'd like to be on his team. Let's stop there. Bless you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh.
amazing, right? Like, We're going to do a response slightly differently. We don't normally do this, but what I'd love to do is finish with a little bit of Q&A, right? Like, that's all right. We normally go for half an hour, so we've got seven minutes of goodwill left. So just give you 30 seconds. If you're an internal processor, you might just want to think for 30 seconds. If you're an external processor, you might want to talk to the person next to you. If they're an internal processor, maybe be a little bit sensitive to that. But then we'll come back, and then I'd love to just two or three questions just to finish off. Okay? Chat among yourself. Okay, so question number one. Question number two. Uh, I like the bit you shared yesterday, yesterday about a cohort being 600. Just, I just want to understand. So, what's the biggest bit of general ignorance that you think from the gospel that we think we all know, but we actually wow. misunderstand question. the gospel? Great question. Okay, so there's your three. Ready? Okay. 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 This is good. This is good. This is good. What's the biggest bit of ignorance? That's good. Um. It's kind of related, by the way, to your good question about, about reflecting on British Christianity, which is related to your status quo. Ha, see, it all fits. It all fits. So, um, okay, these are good questions. I, I want to think. Of it. The thing about looking at British Christianity, it's not, it's not so much that like I'm a Canadian judging the British. Like I think the Canadians... Uh, view is very similar in that we are all in the West we are all products of a thing called Christendom all right so we think we very have uh, closely identified being a Christian with being a, a civilized member of our society which is why it relates to your status quo we, have th we think, and you see it all the time, right? You see books being written that Christianity is common sense. It's just common sense. It's just the sense we all share in common. No, it flipping is not. We think that a guy who's a, who is God died and rose again. We think that when we pray, a voice speaks to us and answers us in our head. That's not common sense, right? We think that, like, poor, stupid people are, are worthy of more honor than rich, important people. But that's not common sense. It's never common sense. Like, Christianity is, real Christianity, when it takes root in a society, is always against the status quo, actually. Because the idea is that prophecy, the prophet, if you think about what prophecy is, prophecy is this, the truth of God being spoken into a, a, an environment. Or you might say, we say God's truth spoken to power. That's prophecy. And you look at the way it works in the Bible, it's always like the Old Testament prophets and, and even the New Testament prophets. They're like, you priests and kings and religion, you think you've got it all sorted, but we're here to tell you God says this. You've forgotten you know, the widow and the orphan or whatever. You've forgotten your first love. And it's always God's truth coming into places where everybody thinks it's all been sorted already. The status quo. The status quo, common sense is when you go, right, we're sorted. Everyone around me agrees. We've settled that. And the Christian 
energy at work in the world is pretty much always to go against that. Now, the interesting thing is, your question in, about Britain is that the thing that the Christian is working against is Christianity now. Right? Because the common culture is Christianized. Or Christendom. And by Christendom, we don't say, we don't mean that every single person in this land has a lively Christian faith, because that's stupid. Of course they don't. But what we do say is, our streets are named after saints and um, you know, Hope Street or Grace Church or our towns are named Christ Church or, you know, I don't know, we, we, you go for, you're asked for directions, where's the bank? And they go, well, you walk down, you take a left at St. Mary's and then, you, and then when you get to St. Nicholas's, you go up the hill. Like Christianity has literally become the fabric and backdrop of our geography and our streets. That is Christendom. If I go into a, when the Apostle Paul walked into a, a market and he said the name Jesus Christ, people had never heard that name before and they were startled. If I go into a marketplace today and I, if I go to the friary and I say, Jesus Christ, they'll think I stubbed my toe. <laughs> right? That's Christendom. That's not live. That's, that's, there's nobody in this whole land that hasn't heard the name of Jesus. There's nobody in this land that hasn't heard what a Christian is or think they know what a Christian is. They usually think it's probably some American Donald Trump supporter, let's be honest. But it's like that has captured our imaginations of like, oh, Christianity is conservative. Uh, people who want to make Britain Christian again, they're always like, that. what they mean is we want to go back to the 1950s or whatever, right? It's, it's that kind of... The idea of being Christian is so linked to an idea of preserving a certain type of culture and civilization. And that's Christendom, you know. And so I would say to Britain and to Canada and America, like, that's the biggest, one of the biggest issues that facing Christians today is how to deal with the fact that everybody in their land, including you who think you're already Christians, have probably inherited something which is much more like are you a Christian? You're like, well, I'm white and I speak English. So I must be a Christian. And we've forgotten how radical and how much the original Christians had to put a death to their home cultures in order to become identified with Jesus. And then you say, well, what's the most ignorant thing? And a lot of it has to do with that kind of idea, actually. Of that, I mean, one of them, one of them that came to mind was, was that because we live in a common culture that is Christianized, we've sentimentalized Christianity. It's become a sentimental thing that you, you do at weddings and funerals. And, we ha and the, the one I wanted to talk to you about was, was, was the idea of heaven. And so we have this idea, this sentimental idea that if you're, Christians think if you're good, when you die, you go to heaven. Not a single word in that is true. And yet that is an invincible idea that even Christians themselves think, right? And certainly if you ask people on the street, what are Christians, what are Christians hope for? And they'll go, they hope that you go to heaven when you die. That's not anywhere in the New Testament, in any of the Gospels, in any of the books that the early Christians wrote. Their hope was that when the Lord would create a new heaven and a new earth and you'd be given a new body on earth. And... We don't know what happens when you die, but the hope was you'll be given a new body again. It's called the resurrection of the dead. It's in there. 
You can look for, and every page you want, you won't find go to heaven when you die. You will find we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. Which is interesting because the heaven language, we've sentimentalized and spiritualized. And Jesus walked around going, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven. And so we, our minds think, oh, that means you go to heaven when you die. No. The word heaven in the New Testament is basically the word you use to describe when God's reign is unopposed. It's a political kind of idea of like kingdom. It's where God's reign is unopposed. And so then you go, another way of saying that is when people say yes to God. And you don't only say yes to God when you're dead. And when your spirit gets sucked up into the sky like a holy hoover. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here, he said, basically he was saying like, you can say yes to God now. And by the way, I'm God. <laughs> Listen to my voice. If you, say what I, if you do what I say, you're saying yes to God. The kingdom of heaven is amongst you. Right? So that's the one thing I would say. I would like hammer home a little bit at heaven language and get rid of that sentimental great Aunt Agatha is up there looking down at us kind of language. And start thinking about heaven as we pray your will be done on earth as in heaven. Right? Cool. Well, how's that for three questions? Yeah? Amazing. So good. Thank you.